When you um, sit down, maybe at work with your colleagues, uh, maybe if you go to a bar or, you know, you're there pounding out on a treadmill at the gym, whatever you're doing, social situation, how do you view those around you? I guess, what is the dominating thought or emotion or feeling that you have towards those people? That'll be different for different people, won't it? Uh, In different situations, different thoughts, different feelings. Perhaps sometimes you envy those around you. You you know, you might look at them and you look at their status, maybe their jobs, their positions, their wealth. You You might look at their relationships. You might even look at their looks and say, oh, I wish I, you know, and so on. But you may go down the opposite route, if you like, and on on occasions you might find yourself looking at people that you know, maybe people at the bar in an evening or whatever it may be, and you might just find yourself looking down your nose at them and maybe judging them a little bit, thinking you're just a little bit better than, than they are. How disappointing that they behaved in that way. For example, you know, someone comes in um, after work, um, sorry, um, the following day after a bit of a night out and there they are in the office explaining with all too much detail about what happened, whether it was, you know, with the drink or with whom and so on. What is your dominating emotion or thought towards them as they kind of tell everyone in the office what they've been up to? Do you find yourself getting a bit exasperated and beginning to Look down upon them. It's very easy, isn't it, to ride that moral high horse. It's a comfortable place to sit. And it's, it's very easy in those situations to be guided by just, well, what everyone else does in the culture around us. It is easy, isn't it, to be envious of some people in some situations. But likewise, it's very easy, isn't it, to judge people, to look down upon people. I mean... For example, the Daily Mail, the tabloid newspaper, that seems to have brought this into a, a real fine art uh, form of what they do. The whole, they, they just judge, they look down upon people. Take, for example, this week, I don't know if you saw the terrible news of uh, Stuart Hall, the BBC One uh, presenter from back in the 60s, 70s. I'm, I'm not going to condone in any way what he has done uh, to a number of young women over a number of decades, but how has it been reported? Have you noticed? What was your dominating thought or emotion? Uh, what did you think when you heard that what he admitted to in a court of law this week? Did you like the Daily Mail, for example, in their three-page spread, point the finger and judge, sit on your high horse and look down? Or did you despair? And what did you think? And what did you feel? Well, today uh, we begin a little series. Um, I hope it's going to come before um, these objections to the Christian faith, little kind of guest services we're going to do in May, June and July, and in between each of those services. The reason I wanted us to get back into a gospel is I want us to get kind of immersed in Jesus, the opportunity to, to see how he thinks about the people around him, how he feels about those around him. And I hope and pray and in doing that, it will help us align our thinking, our thoughts, how we feel about those around us in our office, in the gym, wherever it may be. 
And as we live and work with those around us, and as we invite people to hear the gospel, our big prayer, I guess, is that we begin to see people as Jesus sees them. Think of them as Jesus thinks of them. So we're going to be looking at what is commonly known as the the second discourse of Matthew's gospel. Now, Matthew's gospel is split up into lots of um, very discrete chunks. Matthew's a very, very kind of logical writer in the way that he collects stories uh, and groups of stories. And they are in discourses or chunks of Jesus' teaching. There are five in the whole of Matthew's gospel. You'll probably know that the most famous one being chapters 5 to 7, which is called the Sermon on a Mount, because it was a sermon on a mount. It's pretty clear, that one. Uh, but there, Jesus teaches, the ASV Study Bible puts it like this. It says it's the, the Messiah's teaching for the world. That is, he, he sets out in those chapters the message that he is going to bring to the world uh, that will come through him initially, through the disciples following that, and then through the word, the Bible, following that. The crowds were amazed at his authority when he talked. And what follows that is chapters 8 and 9. We looked at that last summer. I don't know if you remember that. We looked at chapters 8 and 9, quite uh, slowly went through those verses. And there, Jesus demonstrates his authority, authority, not necessarily in his teaching now, but through his actions through the miraculous signs that he did among the people. And what they do is that as a collection, chapters 8 and 9, show that the arrival of Jesus as the king of God's eternal kingdom, it demonstrates that Jesus has authority over all things. Then we get to chapter 10, which is what we're going to be looking at uh, through the next uh, few weeks. Jesus then commissions his disciples to go out with the message of chapters 5 to 7, and with the authority and the action of chapters 8 to 9. They're going to proclaim God's kingdom has arrived in the person and the authority of Jesus. Now some of chapter 10 is obviously and specifically just for the disciples in that, that period of time. And that is quite clear and we'll see that as we go through chapter 10. I'll point out what is specifically for them. But the majority of it is true for all of us still today, if we are Christians. That is, if we're followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. So chapter 10 and these last verses of of chapter 9 will show us that we need to get our thinking right about who Jesus is and what he proclaims. So that we can get our actions right. So like the disciples, we can be proclaimers of the king of God's eternal kingdom. The reason being is people live in ways that are contrary to the way that Jesus proclaimed in chapters 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. You will know that. You you know many people where you work, where you live. And and they do not want to follow Jesus Christ. And therefore, this chapter especially helps us understand how we're to relate to those people who are rebelling against God and his word but also how we're to be distinct as well. We need to get our thinking right. Well, let's dive in. Uh, Look at uh, verse 35 to begin with of chapter 9. I hope that's helpful. Do do keep uh, your Bibles open. I think that will be helpful as we go through. Look at it. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, 
and healing every disease and sickness. So as I put on our outlines, and hopefully on the screen behind you, firstly, we see it as a time for clear thinking. A time for clear thinking. Now this verse, verse 35 of chapter 9, as with the next verse, it really is a a good summary of all that's come before in chapters 8 to 9. But also a platform, a launch pad, if you are, of what is to come in the following chapter. Why don't you flick back, if you can, look through chapters 8 and 9. Just scan through. Some of the titles are quite helpful as well. And you'll see there some of the stuff, some of the actions that Jesus has done to demonstrate his authority as the king of God's kingdom. Just look back. You'll see healings, chapter 8, verse 1. And, and all that follows as well, up until about verse 17. Healing from sickness, disease. Then we get a calming of a storm. Cleansing from demon possession. And we see even the dead, the blind, and the mute are not beyond Jesus' transforming power as you get to the end of chapter 9. I think what we're seeing there, just for a brief moment in history, for three years of Jesus' ministry, we are seeing all the physical effects of God's judgment on this world, of his judgment on our rebellion, our sin against him, all the physical effects that seem to be all around us in the world today are being reversed here in this brief glimpse of his ministry in chapters 8 and 9. If you like, heaven had come to earth. The king was here. You see, since Adam's first rebellion, his first turning his back, saying, I know better than you, God. I know what I'm going to do. Since Adam's first sin in the Garden of Eden, humanity has continually felt the consequences of God's right and just judgment, his present judgment on this earth. And we see that in our world today. And that is not to say that any of us can point the finger and say, look, you're suffering from a particular sickness or illness. Uh, That is because of a particular sin. Uh, God can use his present judgment in that way. But often people suffer because we all live in a world that is under the corporate kind of present judgment of God for our rebellion and ignoring of him. See, I guess if you want to know how much God hates just my sin, You just need to look at the world around us and see the struggle and the sickness and the angst that the whole world is demonstrating at the moment. So what we see in chapters 8 and 9 must have been an extraordinary time. Can you imagine, there's a few doctors here, can you imagine you're sat in your surgery? You'd just be twiddling your thumbs, wouldn't you? Oh, Jesus has done another miracle. Oh, no. You know, I, I don't, you know, there'd be no pharmaceutical companies would be going down week on week. Private health care, oh, all the hospitals would be closing down. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary time. The king of God's kingdom had arrived. And for a brief moment, for the three years when he bodily walked on this earth, it was like heaven had come to earth. Nowhere and therefore no one seemed to be out of the gaze of Jesus. Just look at that. He, he went through all the towns and villages. He went through all of them. Jesus' thinking was clear. All needed to hear 
all needed to receive the gospel message that entry into the kingdom of God was being opened up through this person, through this man, Jesus, who walked among them, who performed miraculous signs to show the power and the authority that he had to, as the entry point of God's kingdom. To demonstrate his power as the king of the eternal kingdom, he was performing just all that we see in chapters 8 and 9. And we see that he had power over all things, even over the justice that our sin deserves, even over death itself. It was a time for clear thinking. We need to have the conviction and the vision, the clarity of purpose that Jesus the King had. As we see in verse 35 here, he was proclaiming and teaching the gospel. But we also need to be clear in our thinking so we don't end up with the wrong expectations, both of ourselves, but of Jesus as well. And now that kind of um, clear thinking is evident in the most surprising of places in this little section of Matthew's gospel. Because if you just flick back, if you can, to Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, you'll see that here it's the demons who have the clearest of thinking. An understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Look at verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 29. The demons are speaking to Jesus and say, What do you want from a son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? It's an extraordinary verse, but the demons knew that the day that they were standing before Jesus was before, have you seen in that verse? Before the appointed time, they say where they would fully and finally be tormented or defeated or judged by Jesus. They knew with clarity, as they stood before Jesus, that there would be a day when all the effects that we face for the sin of humanity would be completely reversed, once and for all. And so as we say in the Apostles' Creed, which is printed on your sheets, just on the inside here, it says there, For one day he shall come to judge the living and the dead. See, the demons had had really clear thinking. They knew that there was an appointed time to come. But they stood before Jesus in his three years of his earthly ministry, supremely under his control, as we see in that little story there. But they see that this is a time before the appointed time. They are clear in their thinking of their expectation of Jesus then and their expectation of Jesus to come. See, Jesus had come initially uh, to demonstrate his power as the judge, the final judge at that appointed time. He was the king of God's kingdom. But Jesus, in his kindness and his love for you and for me and for the whole of humanity, had, it, had come to announce his kingship of that eternal kingdom. And he invites people again and again and again through the proclamation of the gospel, as we see in verse 35, to come and turn to him, to trust him, to trust their lives and their deaths with him. So for that brief moment, God's kingdom was physically on this earth because The kingdom is where the king is. But now physically, Jesus lives in heaven. He died, he rose again, he ascended and now his seat's at the right hand of the Father. 
but spiritually. His spirit is now in the hearts of those who put their trust in him. So the king, you see, is now in us, if we're Christians here today. If we've trusted him, if we follow him, that's where he rules today, by his spirit. Jesus the king has arrived, and we have to understand in what sense he has arrived. The demons had clear thinking about this. It's not the appointed time, as they say in chapter 8, verse 29. But Jesus has arrived. And therefore, the implication of that, the application of that, if you like, for us today is, well, Jesus has come. He's proclaimed the good news. He's demonstrated that he's the entry point into God's eternal kingdom. Therefore, if we're Christians here today, we shouldn't be moping around, sort of heads held low. Ashamed of the great king of God's eternal kingdom. We should want to, like Jesus does, proclaim that good news and make it known. Even in his kindness, he's given us the down payment of his spirit to show all that is to come on that appointed day. We need to get our thinking clear. We need to get our priorities in line with the king of the kingdom. Who we see in verse 35, just to repeat that, went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. It is a time for clear thinking. And secondly, you see on your sheets, it's a time for loving compassion. It is time for loving compassion. Look at verse 36 with me if you can. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That is when Jesus sees humanity living and experiencing the effects of sin in this world. How does he view them? What is his dominating thought? What is his dominating emotion towards these people? Well, it's clear he has compassion. It is in total contrast to the Pharisees that you can see and you plot through in chapters 8 and 9. They're forever pointing the finger, looking down their noses at people. So rather than looking down with disdain from the comfortable saddle of your high horse... Jesus commends us to come alongside and have compassion on those around us. Now, literally, that word compassion comes from a word, actually, entrails, kind of your gut. And so it's, like a, it's kind of a gut-wrenching compassion. That's where the kind of word comes from here. So, so Jesus feels for these people deeply, you could say, really deeply, from inside himself, But why? Because they're harassed and helpless. Spiritually at a loss in this world. And who is Jesus blaming? Well, look, the the finger is being pointed here a little bit at the spiritual leaders. They're the ones on the radar of Jesus. The people are a sheep without a shepherd, he says. Where they should have been lovingly led by the religious establishment and protected by the religious establishment. No, no. They'd only receive the pointing finger of judgment from the religious establishment, the church, in those times. But Jesus stands in this amazing contrast. 
and has compassion on the people. But what about you? What about you? Today we, of course, live in a world where we can see the visible effects of sin. They are all around us. And we can see God's right and just present judgment on a world that is hostile toward him again and again. I don't know if you remember back in Romans, right at the beginning of this year, back in, in just at the beginning of October, we were looking at Romans chapter 1 and what God does at those situations where people again and again and again hostile towards him and his word. What does he do? He does it three times. He hands them over. He hands them over. Continual rebellion against God will lead to a handing over to, of someone to the way that they are choosing to live and the consequences of that life. It is into a kind of a moral, confused state. And we see that in, in the culture around us, in the sexual promiscuity of the office culture. You see that in the drinking culture of the bars and the pubs. People aren't sure, are they, what, what is right and wrong these days. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You can, you can fire an MP for lying about some small thing. But if they are unfaithful to their wife, that's fine. How should we respond? When you see someone bent over, being terribly sick after having too much drink, how are you to respond? Daily Mail kind of finger pointing? Looking down your nose at them, that pharisaical, very long nose. Or like Jesus, have compassion, gut-wrenching compassion to those who have not been led as they ought to have been led and protected. There is utter moral confusion in the world around us, in our culture around us, and it is Romans 1 being kind of lived out, if you like. God has handed people over to their desires and they are suffering for the moral confusion that they live in and the consequences of that. But how will we, if we're Christians here today, respond? How we respond, I guess, will be the mark of, to the people around us of how much we've really understood the gospel and the consequences of the gospel in our lives. So how do you respond when your, your colleagues manipulate their expenses? You know, oh yeah, we're not sure that was really a proper, but we'll slip it in there. How do you respond? How do you respond when the, the culture in your office is to go out for big drinks when you've got the project or whatever it may be and you know, go to some particular clubs, you know what they're like? How do you respond when your flatmate perhaps comes home and they've had a few too many drinks or they're with someone? Parents. This is a difficult one, isn't it? How do you respond when, when someone is perhaps disciplining or bringing up the, a, a child and it's not quite your way? It's not quite the way of the little clique that you're in. How do you respond? You know, when perhaps a mother's had a really long day and they've, they've lost it with their child and got a bit angry. How do you respond? 
How do you respond when you see someone like Stuart Hall in, in, convicted of such terrible crimes against young women this week in the, in the press? Well, of course we should be shocked. And I think sometimes there's a right and appropriate justice that needs to be brought to people like Stuart Hall, and, that, and that's right and biblical. But the point here is rather than pointing the finger with that kind of judgmental looking down your nose, sitting on your high horse of, of your own making, we should have this gut-wrenching compassion that Jesus has. It is a time for loving compassion. Now, I think the biggest problem that we face in this is, is that we need to think about the people that we need to have compassion for. And I think we struggle to, to, to see that they, they need compassion. Their wealth, their perceived kind of success, their happiness clouds our thinking sometimes. And we don't see them as Jesus sees them. And that is why we need to get our thinking straight. We must see people as Jesus sees them. Maybe as Jesus sees you. Oh, you might have the wonderful house. All the material possessions that everyone was clamouring for in your little social group. You may have good relationships. Husband, wife, friends. Stimulating social life. In the world around you, you may be envied. But Jesus is saying here, you could be a sheep without a shepherd. And if you are, then you are spiritually harassed and helpless eternally. And Jesus looks with eyes of compassion on you. But how is that compassion worked out? Well, we see that here in these last two verses. Two ways. Action. We'll see more of that next week in chapter 10. But most importantly today, we see it in prayer. In urgent, sustained prayer. Third point, lastly, it is a time for urgent prayer. Compassion, as we see in, these, in verse 36, leads to prayer. And then later in chapter 10, we see it leads to proclamation. As Jesus already exemplified in verse 35 as well. So let's have a look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. For all that we see around us, I guess for all the effects of sin that we see, the corruption, the, the kind of the sexual behavior of many people, How are we going to respond? Well, Jesus shows compassion, but then calls us to pray. To pray for laborers. To pray that there will be more of us. To have compassion on those living lives that are in rebellion against God. Not following his word. They are like sheep without a shepherd, he says. Spiritually harassed and helpless. And note Jesus doesn't say, go march in Westminster. Get your placards out. Off you go. Let's, let's begin to lobby and tighten up the laws of antisocial behaviour. We want to get that out of our village, please. He doesn't say that, does he? Not that those lobbying and... Mar- None of that's wrong if it's inside the law. What does he say? He says, ask. Pray. 
Ask the Lord of the harvest. And I guess when we do begin to pray for our friends who are sheep without a shepherd, I wonder whether we begin to pray for things like this. I'll pray that the whole of my office becomes Christians. That they, they, you know, they completely turn their lives around. And everyone, we want God to supernaturally intervene and sort of sweep through kind of our social circles and our situations. We want generally people to be as morally upright as us, don't we? We want people to come up to our level. I find myself praying like that and I'm ashamed of that sometimes. Because it's so judgmental. We're to pray because we have compassion. That's what Jesus is saying here. We see that our friends need the shepherd to love them and protect them and care for them eternally. We're to pray because we have compassion. And notice the assumption that Jesus makes here. He says, you wouldn't believe this today, would you? Look at it. The harvest is plentiful. Does it feel like that sometimes in your office? What he's saying here is that many people want to know the answers, and they do, if you bother to ask. For many people, if you just get under their skin, life doesn't make all the sense that they try to portray to the world around them. People want to know about Christ. They want to know if a saviour is available. They recognise their need for a shepherd. They they just don't want to be looked down upon as the Pharisees did. We're to get off our moral high horses and have compassion. The truth is, is that the harvest is plentiful. But sadly, Jesus is saying here, the workers, they're few. There aren't enough humble, trained, committed workers to get out there into the harvest fields of this world. And sadly, too often, Christians, we sit in our, to use the kind of the metaphors we use here, we sit in our barns, don't we? And we strategize about how to get out there into the harvest fields. We plot. And yet, very often, we just don't get out there into the harvest fields. Now, I know nothing about harvesting or farming. And, uh, but even a simpleton like me can even work out that the harvest isn't going to pick itself, is it? You can't wish it. Come on, harvest in. You can't. No. You've got to have the labourers. I remember as a child, my uncle owned a farm just north of Exeter where we grew up and lived. And uh, I remember he had a bumper crop of sweet corn. He grew on his farm. I don't even know what the proper farming name for that is, but it looked like sweet corn to us. And there we went. And the, the harvesters went through and there was loads left. And he gave us some big sacks and his kids. I remember it really vividly. He said, just go and take as much as you want. Yeah, there's so much left in the harvest. Go and take so me and my brothers and my mum and dad, we went there with our big sacks and they filled them up. I probably carried about five. You know, there we go. That's enough for me at that age. But the harvest was plentiful. The point for us, we just had to be willing to go out there. And the same is true for us. The good shepherd asks us, that is the Lord Jesus asks us to pray. And that he literally is saying, he's praying that we throw out The word here is to drive out, actually. Drive out workers into the harvest field. The question is, I guess, why will you not go? 
Why will you not go? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I think the reason we do not go is sometimes we haven't got clear thinking that we need to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as Jesus is the entry point of God's eternal kingdom. I think the other problem is we just don't have that gut-wrenching compassion that Jesus has for those who are sheep without a shepherd. And I also think is we just don't pray enough. We need to pray and pray and pray. So let me finish with these very practical questions, I guess. How is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? I guess things like husbands and dads, are you leading your families to pray? I don't want to make anyone feel guilty. It's just an encouragement from God's word. If you have any compassion, pray. I guess our prayer meeting coming up uh, on Tuesday night, wouldn't it be great if it was our first priority? I know some people struggle to pray publicly, and that's fine. But be obedient, not to me, but to the Lord Jesus, and enjoy the privilege of hearing others pray, and pray with them in the quietness of your heart. I'm so simple sometimes that I just set reminders on my phone, they pop up every now and then, Pray for Barnaby and Zach at 9.05 every morning as I drop them off at school. Because I'm so silly I forget sometimes. Pray for Sarah as I wake up in the morning. Pray for friends I, I, read, um, I pray with in my prayer triplet. Pray for them. It pops up because I forget all too easily. Pray, pray, pray. It is a time for clear thinking. It's a time for loving compassion. It is a time for urgent prayer. Why don't we pray? Why don't you just have a moment to pray yourselves? Think of those who you'll be inviting to the 19th of May to our, our first objections guest service has science, bury God. Who are you going to invite?